Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 87. In today's show, Shai and I will be talking with Eddie Yoon, growth strategy expert for the last 18 years as a partner with the Cambridge Group. In the last five years, Eddie has been key in helping businesses of all types grow from several hundred million dollars to billions of dollars. He is also a keynote speaker and acclaimed author with the Harvard Business Review magazine and recently with his bestseller book, Super Consumers, A Simple, Speedy, and Sustainable Path to Superior Growth. It's unfortunate that 9 of 10 growth strategies are set up to fail long term. Meanwhile, 1% of brands capture 80% of category growth. Since growth is key to even sustaining a business these days, having Eddie with us is indeed timely. Good morning, Eddie. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Thanks, Greg. Happy to be here. It's great to have you share some time with us today. Eddie, you've had a fascinating and diverse career bio of experience, and I wonder if you could take a moment and share with us what led up to your focus on growth strategies and your latest book, Super Consumers. Sure, Craig. So I'm a career consultant, so I have a real job, as it were. So I um, came to college not exactly sure what I wanted to do, and uh, a buddy of mine said, hey, we should try this consulting thing for a little bit. The first stint that I did was in merger integration, and I worked on the merger between two of the big, largest accounting and consultancy firms, and I did that for a couple of years. And lo and behold, uh, Sarbanes-Oxy comes along, and they have to spin out a huge chunk of what I had spent the last two, three years stitching together and that was really disheartening. And so I had a colleague leave there to join Cambridge and she was saying that, you know, why don't you come do growth strategy? It'll be kind of consumer centric and at least you'll be at the front of the train driving it and not at the end where things can change and work can be undone there. So that's was a decision that I made uh, 18 years ago and have been enjoying growth strategy ever since. And speaking of growth strategy, Eddie, I noticed your opinion on how frequently growth strategy fails in the long term. Why is that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of people, when they're running their businesses, they think of naturally as kind of a zero-sum winners and losers like a sports competition. Whereas I actually have found over all of my growth work and some of the research and writing that I've done is actually not always the case in the sense that when I think about companies that grow, nine out of 10 times when I run into them, their default response at the very core is to grow their share. So and growing market share seems like a good idea. That's a widely known metric that everyone tracks. But what ends up happening is that Let's say, you know, Shai, Craig, we all compete in the same category. And my belief is that in order to grow my business, I have to take share from you guys. So I have to copy your products, discount pricing, or outspend you all. And then you do the same to me the year afterwards. And lo and behold, in a few years, we're all kind of in a worst case scenario where we're all destroying industry profit and no one's really winning. What I've actually found is that the best way to grow your business is to actually grow the pie. So grow the category, either through bringing in new consumers, increasing units per consumer, or increasing price per unit. And that if you have a clear way, and that's compelling to actually do one of the three or multiple of the three levers, then my research has shown that 1% of the brands actually capture 80% of the category growth. And so 
oftentimes when people kind of realize well, shoot, it's some game in that if I don't want to be kind of in a vicious cycle long run, how do I grow the pie? And then they usually say, well, would I benefit everybody else? And my response is, well, you win disproportionately so as a result of that. And even even better than growing your own category, the next best option, and in fact, the, what I consider the ultimate in growth strategy is to create an entirely new category. And there my research shows, um, and I've written about this in Harvard Business Review, is that companies can grow four times faster top line and grow their valuation or their stock price six times faster, which is really remarkable. Okay, I'm in. Where do we start? (laughs) If we want to create another category, how do we begin to look at our business to see if that's even possible? Yeah, no, the way that I look at creating a new category is really two things. So it's the combination of breakthrough product innovation and breakthrough business model innovation. What that means is most people think about, I have a new product I have to offer or a new service I'm creating, or they focus on other things, like I'm on the same thing, but I'm going to do it in a different way. So case in point, if you think about what's happened in the coffee industry in the U.S. over the last 50 years, a little bit of a pop quiz. If Craig and Shai, what would you guess is uh, per capita consumption of coffee in the U.S. has it gone up or down or sideways in 50 years? In 50 years? Wow. I would think it's gone up like crazy. I can tell you that in my house it has. Yeah, yeah it seems that way. Yeah, it, this is always my natural instinct, even though I know the stat here, is to believe that it's gone up. And the truth of the matter is it's actually been cut in half in the oh. last 50 years, which is remarkable. So per capita consumption of coffee has come down in half, which is to say, you know, we're not drinking less liquids, we're drinking other things that are there. But really, when you think about the coffee industry, coffee, not new necessarily, but when Starbucks came around and you could charge two, three bucks, four bucks for a cup of coffee versus say, you know, cents per cup or a nickel per cup, you had filtered ground coffee, that, that was a game changer, right? And at in it was the same coffee but delivered through a new business model now they began to innovate the coffee itself so they combined the business model innovation with the product innovation so uh, different coffee drinks frappuccinos and whatnot and it's to the point now where if you think about starbucks you think about coffee but the truth of the matter is it's actually a dairy company because they sell nine times more dairy than they actually sell of coffee now and why their business has thrived while coffee consumption actually down. And in similar effect, you look at what Keurig has done in the U.S. too. So reintroducing single-serve coffee with hundreds of varieties of K-cups that you have there at home, that they are charging a premium to Folgers and the like there at 50 cents per cup, but it's a discount to Starbucks. And so, again, coffee kind of not necessarily being reinvented, but how it's being delivered through a single-serve device with over 300 different brands. And that when you look at how you create two different categories within the same space of coffee. And I think those two coffee companies have actually created tens of billions of dollars of market cap value while the category itself has come down in half per capita consumption basis. And so how does this connect us to super consumers? Great segue, Shai. So the reason why super consumers come into play is, and my definition of super consumers are people who are highly profitable and highly passionate about a category. So said differently, they spend a lot, care a lot, not necessarily a brand, but the category. So uh, if you could go back in time, you knew that it would work and you knew that the Starbucks playbook would work. What you would do is find a coffee super consumer, right? Because the notion of going to someone who was taking, say, 
you know, ground coffee, dumping it into a cup and mixing hot water into it and saying, hey, how about I charge you now four bucks for a cup of coffee that actually has much more milk in it than not, and I make you wait in line for this thing that's out there. They would look at you like you had three heads. Now, <laughs> no doubt. The flip of that is if you took someone who was doing kind of suffering through filtered coffee, but was actually quite passionate about the category, had their own beans and were going through the rigmarole of grinding it. Now, Starbucks did not replace that. But when you got to them and said, wonderful cup of coffee made the way that you want and with this wonderful third place experience that Howard Schultz talks about, would you be willing to pay more for that? They would say absolutely. Whereas you take an average consumer who's not invested in the category and they would say no, no way. And the same vein of every new category that's created, in fact, every new innovation that be it a new product or a new business model. At the very beginning, at the tip of the spear, are super consumers because the only people who really are going to jump on board something new are the people who are already spending a lot of money to fill this need that they have there. And therefore, it's not a huge leap for them to do this and are quite deeply passionate and engaged about it in a way that the learning curve is not so steep for them. They enjoy the process there. And then similarly, it's not just that the early adopting super consumers, but when they find a great solution to a long-standing evergreen need that they've had, they tell other people. And in fact, not just that they tell them, but other people follow their example because they know, hey, Craig is, I'm going to make it up, the coffee guy out there. And if he says that Starbucks is good, I'm going to believe him. If he says that Keurig is good, same thing. And that's when you get a movement kind of started. And then the, the next set of folks come along and then soon enough you phenomenon where everybody goes to this thing called Starbucks period home. Eddie, traditionally, many um, business owners and their marketing departments focus on their most profitable customers. I have to say, many businesses out there aren't really sure who they are. But in focusing on the most profitable customers, are they ignoring this opportunity with creating a category? Yeah, no, it's a question. And it's a slight but really important nuance that you're drawing here is that the distinction between, say, if I was running a business and my most profitable customers and a, a super consumer, they seem very similar. But just like how you play a, a musical note, and let's say two people are playing the violin and they're playing the same note, but one is slightly that sound is horrible, right? And it's actually worse than if you were playing something over a note that was out there. And that same kind of dissonant when you focus on your most profitable customers, you're really losing out on the category, as it were, right? So let's say, Shai, you had a coffee company, to use our example, and you had a lot of great customers that were coming to you, talking to, listening to, building a relationship and learning from people who love your business, but also love coffee writ large and were not monogamous, as it were, because they can really tell you, hey, did you know that this up-and-coming brand is out there and you really ought to watch out because I really like them? Or, hey, this new technology is out there, but eh, I've tried it. It's not so good with it. And so when I think about if I was in business or running in that, certainly the people that you, you serve today, you have a decently good amount of information for, and you should absolutely build out your data and get to know those folks really well. What you do is kind of parse the people that you have. Your customers are people who use different brands and businesses within your category to a great degree. So you will want to start with the best customers and then from figure out within them who are the true supers who are using different brands and categories um, that are competitive to you, that are adjacent to you, and even some that may not seem like they're really naturally a substitute, but I learned something new there. 
In terms of the pipeline for growth as far as ideas and different directions we're going to go with our strategy for growing a segment, you refer to you know new breakthrough products or innovation coming out and having a pipeline of those. Tell us more about that side. Sure. So if you think about the traditional pipeline, be it for any kind of new innovation or a new pricing strategy, new market sales effort, a pipeline you think of kind of working one direction, right? So it's those two funnels, say the water or idea source to another one. And partly what I think is the next generation um, strategy in terms of really good pipeline is something that doesn't just flow one way, but is actually in multiple sources in multiple directions. And so let me take you out of, um, I used music as an analogy beforehand, um, businesses, be it large or small, the way that they think about their marketing and sales and innovative efforts are like a monologue or a solo. So you have something to say, and you're just going to shout it as loudly as you can until the audience comes around. Age where not even just super consumers, but regular consumers have access to a huge platform on social media, and one mistake can ruin you know ten years of reputation building for your brand or your business. That it's really important that you have a dialogue or a duet, and that a lot of businesses are moving this way. I think a lot of smaller ones have an advantage of being nimble and being responsive to their customers that are out there. What super consumers really brings about is the need for a trio. So it's not. Uh, necessarily just a duet, but it's for sure not a solo monologue where you know companies are just talking at people. You're actually in a conversation, but a three-way conversation with both a super consumer, but also what I call a potential super consumer. So let me take you out into a different category. So I've done work in tequila, and so there are people who are tequila super consumers, and they love tequila, know their stuff, buy a lot of it. They know the differences between Añejo and Blanco and Reposado tequila. And there are, for every one of those, there are two or three other people who would like to be like those people. They are interested in tequila. They would like to learn more, but they're kind of stuck with a margarita in their hand because they don't really know how to get from A to B. What you should do if you are a tequila brand or a beverage alcohol brand is try to aim to get your pipeline to be this three-way conversation, this trio where you are talking with your super consumer and kind of poetic about how wonderful tequila is. You're learning from um, you're offering new ideas, be it new products, new strategies on your marketing, your sales, new pricing, whatnot. And they're reacting. They're telling you what I like, what they don't like. But you want it to be in a way where the potential super consumer, this is someone who, again, has the same passion as a super, but not yet spending as much money with it. You want them to overhear the conversation. You want them to not be afraid to ask a dumb question of a super consumer and engage in that way. And what you're really looking for is that kind of trifecta where what you are offering to the super consumer really resonates with them and they're excited about it. But it's also translatable to someone who is not a super consumer but would like to be. And when you can do that, you can grow the category probably 10, 20% has been my experience uh, in a pretty significant way which is hard to do in a world where we're looking at just trying to keep with inflation for a lot of categories. So where do we begin talking to our customers? Yeah, it's a great and easy question for me to answer is that for most businesses, I'd say at least on the business to consumer side, you probably have more super consumers under your nose than you realize. So I always say, talk to friends, talk to your coworkers. And I once did some work for a pork company. They call their super consumers pork dorks, as it were, right? And 
number one pork dork that they had was a guy that worked in finance in their accounts payable department. And he wasn't really consumer facing, but he ate three pounds of bacon in a week. And it was kind of maddening because he was super skinny and very healthy. <laughs> you can understand what, how he was able to do that, but he did. I was going to say he's he was, dead now, but at least we captured all the data. We <laughs> Yeah, so far still alive and kicking and the like and stuff. But those good genes, I guess. But he was someone who was a fabulous resource to talk to. Hey, if I change the packaging like this, what do you think, right? If I do this ad, you know, does this resonate with you? If I launch this new product, how would you react? How would you endorse this or not with it? And it was almost like they just had this guy who was a free resource within them that, you know, he didn't have all the answers, but he was able to kind of enable them to make better choices, avoid stupid mistakes, but really move faster in a way that was really brilliant. So again, just look for the relationships that you have around. More likely than not, you probably know more super consumers than you realize. The other bit that I'll tell you is that super consumers leave great digital breadcrumbs. And so what I mean by that is, you know, if you think about your own web presence, social media, mobile, if anyone's downloaded an app that you have or, you know, has taken the time to log in or set up a login, I always say that how people spend their time is as indicative of their passion as how much they spend of their money. And so unless you are, say, in the movie making business or sports where a lot of people are really passionate about it, most likely than not, if they are engaging with you in some sort of digital way, they are probably a super consumer. Because, you know, if you're posting on Facebook about white socks, as it were, plain old white socks, right? Most people don't do that. They're posting about their latest trip to whatever. And so the digital breadcrumbs, I think, are quite evident once you kind of realize, like, how people are spending their time and really how they risk their reputation at some level by sticking their neck out about their level of passion. And then the third thing that I always say is look for anomalies in your data set. Variance in your data set, be it shipments or where your sales come in from, what day of the week it comes in from with it. Um, the word that I hate the most is average in business because I, I just think it smooths out all this data that you have. And uh, tricks people into thinking that every part of the U.S. is the same, and therefore, if I just kind of run my business towards the averages and you know to the lowest common denominator, that's the right thing to do, and that's absolutely the worst thing to do. Is that look for the variance? That's where your consumers are going to be. I remember once uh, a large ice cream company they had for one of their most popular flavors. Over half the sales of that one flavor occurred in 3,000 out of 35,000 grocery stores. So less than 10% of the stores did half of that product's business. And so it's not the case that you should say, well, I should try to make sure that my ice cream is in stock in the other 34,000 or 32,000 stores. No, no, no. What you really want to make sure is that you're out of stock in those core 3,000. And then you say, what are the other stores that should be like those 3,000? because of the geographic, demographic, or consumer demand in that area aren't, and how do I make it so there? So this is my big thing is uh, against this idea of peanut metrics and peanut buttering your resources is the wrong thing to do. What was remarkable to me is that in the article you did for Harvard Business Review with some of your colleagues a few years back, you talk about Velveeta cheese. Are there actually super consumers for Velveeta cheese? Oh, 100%. It's amazing to think about every category that I've, in every country that I've seen, there are super consumers that are there. And specifically around Velveeta, what the great story there is, you know, they are who you think they are. 
in terms of everybody has stereotypes about different consumers and different brands. And, you know, you might have one image of someone who is uh, conjured up when you think about a Velveeta super consumer. What I can tell you is I won't name the person because um, I didn't get permission, but someone who is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, CEO of several large, really well-respected companies. After I gave a talk to consumers and mentioned Velveeta, I ran into him in the elevator and pulled me aside. And you would not imagine this. He's wearing a suit. He's like... I got to tell you, I am a Velveeta super consumer. <laughs> it's running in my veins. It's, you know, so you just have to know who those people are because it's, you know, what. Oh, you I buy. know. I act, yeah. I actually have a. I think you're talking about my buddy Billy. He will put Velveeta on pretty much anything. Well, and, and and that's the beauty of it. Actually, is your buddy Billy's ingenuity of putting Velveeta on anything is really the core of why that brand grew so rapidly, but also the beauty of super consumers. So we mentioned before this idea of jobs theory that Clay Christensen and one of my friends, uh, Taddy Hall, has written about is, you know, you hire a brand or a product for a job, not just buy it. So most people, when they, quote, hire Velveeta, it's for a, a queso dip or a cheese dip that they're making, typically for the Super Bowl. So as you would imagine, sales of Velveeta spike in December and January, and they kind of uh, drop off after that. People who are Velveeta super consumers, they're not people who have nine times the amount of dip that exists or they go to nine Super Bowl parties. What they are are people who use it year round, like your friend Billy. And when we got really deeply conversation with one of the super consumers, they would say, you know, it's a Trojan horse to get my kids to eat more vegetables. Is really what she was saying. Why she used it so much was like, yeah, great for dips, great for grilled cheese, great for mac and cheese. But if you look at, and literally I remember holding up a piece of broccoli stock and she's saying, what kind of cheese could I melt on this that would work as well as Velveeta? Like put shredded cheese off, put a you know big old slice of cheese, it kind of melts kind of oddly. It's not, you know, it doesn't really work. You put Velveeta on it into every little nook and cranny of the broccoli stock that you can get so that when the kid bites it, it's kind of a magically transformed experience of eating vegetables and not. And so when you listen to this super consumer talk about Velveeta, and again, like your friend Billy, I would have never thought of it as not just a horse to get my kids to eat vegetables, but perhaps the very best cheese on the market for this particular job. And it's kind of like, oh, I talk about with Taddy this idea of not just everyday jobs or entry-level jobs that people hire Velveeta for, but they're kind of executive-level jobs that are where the stakes are higher, right? And the idea of getting your kids to eat more vegetables, it's a big, your kids' nutrition is a much bigger job than just a Super Bowl party. So the stakes are higher. And you know what? It's a much more universal job that people have than people realize, uh, you know, and if I told you, hey, I'm going to have a marketing campaign to get more people to eat Velveeta. That's a hard, long pot, just given the perceptions that people have. But if I told people I have a growth strategy predicated on getting more American kids to eat more vegetables, I got a lot of runway there, a lot of support in a way that I think would be pretty powerful and compelling for a long period of time there. That's such a great analogy. And you know, I think the lesson here is really getting to that deeper place of understanding, do you really know why your consumers are buying from you right now, right? If we don't get to that emotion and beyond the functional need of understanding what is the job they're really trying to get done, we could be missing all this data that's right in front of our face. 100%. And that's where I think this idea of not just talking to average consumers, because they'll give you average answers. And usually most of it is, hey, make the price lower (laughs) with it. Find a super consumer. Don't be concerned if they seem a little bit on the extreme side. 
there's another article that I'd written in HBR about the difference between that's weird as a response to consumer behavior and that's funny. And that that's weird is a very judgmental statement and that versus that's funny, which is much more about curiosity and probably a logical reason why this person behaves the way that they do. And when you, again, find not an average, but a super consumer react with curiosity to their story. And you think about what all the great superhero movies that come out, it's really getting to their origin stories. It's the same idea. Here you have a super consumer. Let me understand the origin story of how you became a super consumer, because you probably weren't one from the get-go. Understanding that evolution from even non-consumer to a light one, to an average one, to a super consumer, like that's where all the magic and the gold exists there. And that my experience is that any business of any size, if you go through that exercise, you walk away with a treasure sites of how to grow your business in the category there. Yeah, that's brilliant advice. And, you know, the other piece of this, Eddie, is I know in your book you talk about the facts. And I think this is really interesting as it relates to these people is that it turns out that sometimes super consumers are much more likely to be super consumers of multiple things. You know, the things that we buy, universally, the things that are always on our mind. And so I always say like um, a super of one uh, category tends to be a super of nine others. And I validated from Nielsen data. And this is where the magic happens, um, where the thread pulls from different categories. So the example that I give is sometimes people who buy a lot of frozen food are also super consumers of vitamins. And people say, well, why would that be? And so when you dig deeper into it, it's people who have a lot of frozen foods. Uh, the way that they are able to buy a lot of frozen food is not that they eat a lot of it, but they store a lot of it. So therefore, they need multiple refrigerators. Well, these are people who are kind of prepared in advance for the worst case scenario. And so if I store a lot of food, maybe it's because the grid is not so reliable or the weather is very extreme and therefore I need to just be prepared. And where those two things are true about environmental factors and the grid is not reliable, they tend to be proactive purchasers of generators, so standby generators, which are very expensive. People who buy a generator are also people who, you know, again, a generator is a really tough sell in the sense of it's a really expensive product, you know, 10,000 bucks or so for something that may never happen. The people who are willing to do that tend to have two to three times the amount of life insurance that they actually need. And the people who have more life insurance than they actually need are really good candidates of folks who would buy a lot of vitamins, which basically is the same type of behavior. I, do, I spend money and I do something now, unknowable benefit at an unknowable time in the future. <laughs> and that the consumer that is willing to do all of these things, it tells you kind of a, a real in-depth portrait of who they are, what they care about, what their mindset is when it comes to different categories and CRM data may sit in somebody else's category out there and that if you could cross sell against a life insurance and a vitamin list if you're a frozen pizza manufacturer then that might actually be a much more brilliant marketing strategy than say just going after uh, the usual thing and hoping for a different result and again I, I just go back to this idea that people are marvelously complex and endlessly interesting and therefore people who are really curious about super consumers they tend to be rewarded with great insights about how to grow. Well, thank you for joining us today, Eddie. We really enjoyed our time with you. Hey, Craig. Hey, Shai. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for having me on. Uh, thank you. And is there anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners? 
Yeah, so I just wanted to say to everyone listening in, uh, I will be joining your ranks. So after 18 years at the Cambridge Group, I am leaving my role as a senior partner there, and I'm going to become a sole printer. So I have a new venture, which is a think tank slash advisory on growth. It's called They Would Grow, which is a little bit of a play on words. I was born and raised in Hawaii, and there's a famous uh, big wave surfer, Eddie Aikau, and his catchphrase was Eddie Would Go uh, for his courage and generosity for how he lived his life. And so Eddie Would Grow is a little bit of my tribute to that. Uh, folks can reach me at my new website. It's www.eddiewoodgrow.net. And you can reach me at Twitter at Eddie Would Grow. So looking forward to the conversation. And uh, thanks again. Our guest today has been Eddie Yoon, Chief Growth Strategist, keynote speaker and author of Super Consumers, A Simple, Speedy and Sustainable Path to Superior Growth. You can learn more about Eddie as well as find links to his recent book and new business venture, Eddie Would Grow, in our show notes at businessownersradio.com. This episode has been sponsored by Aligned for Business. That's Aligned, the number four, business.com. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.